Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of Let's Read the Bible. I'm Evan. And I'm Aaron. And this is a podcast where we read the Bible together every year and talk about what we learned along the way. If you'd like to follow along, you can download the YouVersion Bible app and look up the Grove Church in Marysville, Washington. You can find our plan there. We also have the plan available on our website, grove.church. And Aaron, if you are jumping in, not you, because obviously you're not just jumping in today, but... Oh, you're, oh, that's right. Yeah, we're going. Oh, yeah. yeah. Vacations anyway. and stuff. It's a good time. Uh, if you, dear listener, beloved listener, are jumping in for the first time, you can join us on day 134 of One, the plan. Three, we are talking four. about that this week. Yes, it's going to be a lot of fun. Uh, and I don't know if you're anything like me, as Evan is doing the introduction, uh, he says, and this is a podcast where we read the Bible. I had the Fresh Prince of Bel-Air song come in my head. Like, and now this, this is, is, a, is podcast. a podcast all about where we talk about the Bible. Anyways. Uh, all that to say, if you have questions that you're just, listening to us, cut it off earlier. we would love to take time to answer those questions. There are three ways that you can send us those questions. The first of which is an email. Uh, the email address is info at grove.church. Make sure to put in the subject line a podcast question, or you can DM us on our social media sites. We have a Facebook page and we have an Instagram handle and a page. Uh, and so you can slide into our DMs and ask us questions all you want about the Bible, uh, our handles are the Grove CH, uh, and that is both for both Facebook and Instagram. But we would love to take time as much as we can week over week to answer those questions. So make sure to send them our way. There you go. All right. Well, this week we are continuing, wrapping up really our Psalm extravaganza. For so, now. Yeah. To, well, I mean, we I might jump into another round of something soon. I don't think it's going to be like this many. Well, you've got one. the, well, maybe not this many, but I still think we might hit a week or so. Won't we? Yeah. 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 We'll, we'll be, we're not done with the book of Psalms, but we were, we're done with, I think doing entire We're, about, we're halfway through the book of Psalms though. Yeah, but there's more like, I guess I'm saying, I don't know. Here's the deal, listeners. We haven't, I I don't, I shouldn't say we, I have not looked through like the entire plan. So I don't have it mapped out as far as like what every episode looks like. But Wait, I, you don't? Oh, I do. Oh, there you go. I'm just kidding. I do not believe we have another week coming up where it's just all Psalms all day, but I could be wrong on that. Who knows? Now, here's what I'm going to do the friendly thing. I'm going to ignore you for the next 10 minutes and I'm going to look ahead. Dude, just do it. to tell you that you're wrong. All right. Well, this week we are talking about Psalm 103 is the first one. We're going to do all of the Davidic Psalms this week, and then we're going to hit a couple, uh, we're going to hit a couple fun ones about some different authors of Psalms that were probably written about the same time. Um, I really appreciate Psalm 103. I think sometimes we have, we have a very simplistic view of the nature of God. Like I've heard people say like the wrathful God of the Old Testament and the merciful God of the New Testament, as if either there's two separate gods, which is heresy, or um, like God just kind of changes his mind. Like he's just full of wrath and not merciful. And then when Jesus comes around, it's like, ah, you know, guys, I say guys as in like the triune Godhead, let's try being, (laughs) let's try being merciful now. Like, but obviously that's not the way it works. Um, There is God's wrath is on full display mm-hmm. um, throughout all of scripture, just like God's mercy is on full display all throughout scripture and his justice and his truth. Like all of the, all of the characteristics of God are fully on display within all of scripture. And Psalm 103 is a good reminder of that. So a couple highlights I picked out here, um, starting in verse two, it says, bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives you all iniquity and who heals your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy. Jumping ahead to verse six, it says, the Lord works righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. He made known his ways to Moses, his acts to the people of Israel. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, 
and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. And so what's this psalm celebrating? It is celebrating the fact that even though we sin, even though we fall short, the Lord is merciful with us. And I think sometimes we think of that as being only a new a new covenant thing that God would be merciful even though uh, we sin and fall short. But no, it, it is all, all throughout. Uh, God is very merciful with people who constantly break covenant. Uh, for for exhibit A, Israel. Like as we keep moving through the history of this nation, we're going to see time and time again that that is what's going to happen there. Uh, our Dude, next, I just got songs popping in my head all day long, like time after time. Anyways, oh, mine was the. Uh, uh, it was a worship song. Of, oh, the, the bless the Lord. Oh, you see, you got Lord all spiritual, man. Soul. I went like old school and I mean, it's a good time. songs. But uh, then we get to, we're going to jump ahead to Psalm 108, uh, and this shows Yahweh as the mighty warrior who rules not only Israel but has defeated all the surrounding nations. That's going to be a theme that we'll see in a lot of the Psalms. Uh, Psalm 109 shows David asking God for punishment to befall the wicked men who have rejected David's love. Uh, so it's kind of, it's just kind of interesting. It's like, hey, I gave them love and they gave me nothing in return. And David's just kind of going after them. Uh, and then later in the Psalm, we see a little bit more about these wicked men. So we get this description. It says, and this is in verse 16. For he did not remember to show any kindness, but pursued the poor and the needy and the brokenhearted to put them to death. He loved to curse, let curses come upon him. He did not delight in blessing, may it be far from him. He clothed himself with with cursing as his coat, may it soak into his blood like water, like oil into his bones. May it be like a garment that he wraps around him, like a belt that he puts on every day. May this be the reward of my accusers from the Lord, of those who speak evil against me my life. So there you go. David's, uh, he's not happy with the wicked. And I feel like that's like, uh, this is a theme that we see all throughout David's life where he's, or at least in the Psalms, we're going to see it a ton, but David is, he's not afraid to ask God to go after the wicked. <laughs> it's so true. So the, the imprecatories, they're a good time. Uh, Psalm 110, this Psalm shows how Yahweh has invited David to sit at his right hand. And the Psalm talks about how Israel and David will be blessed. Uh, and it also has, you know, this interesting illusion that'll come up later in the Bible. It says in verse four, the Lord has sworn and sworn, uh, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Well, Aaron, a, a priest in the order of Melchizedek. Oh, interesting. That, I mean, that was just that. I that, think that comes up somewhere. Yeah. That's that guy who soon. met Ish. Abraham. Yeah. When I'm we say, kidding. when we say it comes up soon, we mean it'll come up in like November, but, <laughs> it's it will, so but it'll come up this year. Um, and I guess, I mean, you know, it's, it's not like we care about spoiling the Bible here. So uh, if you don't know, uh, Jesus operates as the high priest. He is the greater high priest. And in the book of Hebrews, it talks about how he has, he is a priest after the order of Melchizedek because Jesus is not a Levite. Jesus is a, is a Judahite, is Judite. I don't know how you'd say that, I guess, but he's from the tribe of Judah, uh, not from Levi. So it's that whole, it's a whole kind of thing there. I, us Gentiles, I guess, we don't really care what tribe Jesus is from. <laughs> like, like, yeah, you can be our priest, but uh, that would have been a very important thing to uh, wrestle through for Jewish believers in the first century. Uh, Psalm 122. This psalm is, I believe, Aaron, our first song of ascents this year. I don't think we've done any of those yet. So 
Uh, I don't recall. Yeah, I, I'm pretty sure. I'll take your word for it. There you go. Uh, so if you're when you see song song of ascents, what these were is they were songs that would be sung by groups of Israelites as they make their pilgrimage to Jerusalem. So you're going to Jerusalem. You're going to offer sacrifice, particularly once the city comes into view and you're making your way to it. And and it would have been be, you you can see Jerusalem from far away because it is on a hill, right? So that like like most great cities of the ancient world, you built it on a hill so you could defend it better. Jerusalem is no exception. And so you would start singing these songs as you're making your way towards the city. Uh, Psalm 122 rejoices in the idea of going to the house of Yahweh in Jerusalem. Uh, It also speaks to the joy of every tribe making their way to the city and talks about what, what a beautiful thing that all of the tribes of Israel go to Jerusalem to worship. And that's going to last for one more generation. It's <laughs> true. It's, and then it's over. So. But another fun song, Make My Way Downtown, just popped into my head. Walking fast. I don't faces. even know, bro. I don't know what it is about today. It's Maybe it's something time. in the water I'm drinking. Um, yeah. And so this is going to be ob- when, when uh, Judah and the northern kingdom of Israel split. The northern kingdom of Israel does not still make pilgrims to Jerusalem. So within, by after the death of Solomon, and the very short reign of his idiot son over a combined <laughs> Israel, uh, after that it's over. The people of northern Israel wah, no longer, wah. yeah, they no longer go to, um, they no longer go to Jerusalem to worship. Instead, they worship in their, their own high places, and that's kind of. It's not, yeah, it's not a good thing. But no. you know, for this, for the for the time when this was written. And for the little bit that it was true, it's a good time. It's fair. Uh, Psalm 124 is our next song of sense, and it declares that if it were not for Yahweh being at the people's side, Israel would have failed, uh, which is a great reminder for people who seem to forget that very often. And lest you think I'm just talking about Israel, listeners, no, I'm talking about all of us. We all forget that if it wasn't for God, we wouldn't have what we have today. So That's fair. It's a good reminder to keep. Uh, Psalm 131 is our next song of ascents, and it deals with the appropriate humility of the king. So, and this is David specifically here, right? It's a good topic. Uh, Yeah. I mean, humility humility is just a good deal in general, Um, but I think this is one of David's best qualities is the fact that for the most part, obviously he has moments, but for the most part, he operates in very extreme humility, which is a good deal. Um, And so, and we can read the full thing because it's only three verses. So Psalm 131, it says, O Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me, but I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with with its mother, like a weaned child is my soul within me. O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth forever." And forevermore. So there you go. Amen. It's, it's a good, it's a good time. And again, just a reminder to don't occupy yourself with things. That, and and it, the the two marvelous for me, it very much reminds me of Job, where that's what Job repents oh, yeah. of, right? He says that um, I spoke of things that are too wonderful for me. So not marvelous, but wonderful. And I think it's a. There's a few psalms I I noticed that they're they feel a little Joby, and we'll get to them here uh, in a little bit. But it just kind of stood out to me. Psalm 133, this song of ascent stresses the importance of the unity of the people of Israel. Uh, again, which is a, it's a reminder you wish they would have heeded a little bit more, but what are you going to do? And this one's also only three verses, so we can just read the whole thing. But it says, Behold, how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. It is like the precious oil on the head running down the beard on the beard of Aaron. Hey, 
I have a beard. Beard, beard. Uh, running down the collar of his robes. It is like the dew of Hermon, which falls on the mountains of Zion. For the, there the Lord has commanded the blessing, life forevermore. So again, just... For clarity, I'm not wearing a robe, though. You could be, though. But I'm not. And, and, that, and that's one of your... You're not even wearing an ephod, bro. Come on. Nope. What are you doing? Um, yeah, again, it's just a psalm celebrating the idea of the people of Israel dwelling in unity, the tribes of Israel dwelling in unity, um, which unfortunately is not going to make it very much farther <laughs> past when this psalm is written, but it is It is what it is, listeners. Psalm 138, we're going to break out of the Songs of Ascent to this psalm, which sees David praising Yahweh over other gods and rejoicing that Yahweh is faithful and saves the lowly. Um, And I think, again, you kind of have to go back in time to polytheistic cultures to really understand what is going on in these passages, right? Because today... Listeners, we most people there's there's some, but most people aren't struggling with worshiping other gods, like being joining other religions. I guess is the way I would phrase it, right? Like you're not thinking, well, yeah, I think the god of the Bible exists, but also, uh, you know, the Hindu gods. Those guys are pretty awesome as well. Like most people are pretty. You're picking one, and you're going That's with true. it. Um, back in this culture, very very common to just acknowledge the existence of all the gods, and then you're just like, yeah, this is my personal god, like the god of my city or the god of my nation. But it's not like. Um, all, all the other gods fight. It's why you see the Philistines stick with Dagon after Yahweh clearly demonstrates that he is over Dagon in every single way and they return the ark to Israel. That doesn't convince them, you know, maybe we should look into this, maybe we should look into this Yahweh more and maybe and maybe worship him. Instead, they're just like, ah, yeah, you know, Dagon's our guy. So uh, it is right that David would praise God over all of the other lower G gods. Uh, Psalm 139 is a celebration of Yahweh's knowledge of all of us. It begins with David's declaration that God has searched him and knows him and also contains this very famous passage. So I, I just read this whole thing here as the seven verses, but where shall I go from your spirit or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. Sheol is the word for the grave, by the way. So like in the earth, uh, if I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light about me be night. Even the darkness is not too dark for you, nor the uh, the light is as bright as the day for the darkness is as light with you. For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. And if you've ever attended a woman's retreat, the last two verses there is just I guarantee I guarantee you has been the uh, the main verses in at least one of those. How do you know that? How do I know that? Oh, dude, I've set up for women's retreats a bunch I'm of times. Do one of my favorite ones was like just to like give you the idea of like the difference between like the men and women's retreats is uh um like the tissues is a whole there's a whole like box that you bring and you it's, set them out. It's probably stuff. true. I could totally understand. I've never been to a women's retreat, never set up for women's retreats. So imagine, I, w- I wouldn't be able to know. Imagine being healthy and in touch with your emotions. <laughs> oh Who gosh, does that? What a joke. Uh, so getting to Psalm 140, uh, and this will come up with our question today that we have at the end, but so I wanted to examine the use of Selahs. And so we've talked to, we've talked about it a little bit this week or the, the last few weeks. Uh, when you see Selah in the Psalms, what it, the idea there is, is that you pause and reflect on what it is that you just read. Um, when I was reading through Psalm 140, I liked how interesting it is that the tone shifts after Selah's. And so you can kind of see David himself pausing, reflecting, 
and then writing something different. So let, let's see how it goes here, right? So it says, deliver me, O Lord, from evil men. Preserve me from violent men who plan evil things in their heart and stir up wars continually. They make their tongue sharp as a serpent's and under their lips is the venom of as- of as- Oh, I should have asps. There we go. Is the venom of asps. Selah. So that's where we're that's where we're sitting and pondering about the wicked. Next verse, guard me, O Lord, from the hands of the wicked. Preserve me from violent men who have planned to trip up my feet. The arrogant have hidden a trap for me, and with the cords they have spread a net beside that way, beside the way they have set up snares for me. Selah. So again, we're pondering on the wicked, but we have that very um guard me, O Lord, right, is how we're starting up. So it's going from the wicked back into the idea. The first one is deliver me. The second one is guard me. After the second Selah, we go into, I say to the Lord, you are my God. Give ear to the voice of my plea for mercy, O Lord. O Lord, my Lord, the strength of my salvation, you have covered my head in the day of battle. Grant, O Lord, not the desires of the wicked. Do not further their evil plot, or they will be exalted. Selah. As, as for the head of those who surround me, let mischief on their lips overwhelm them. Let burning coals fall upon them. Let them be cast into fire, into miry pits, no more to rise. Let not the slander be established in the land. Let evil hunt down the violent man speedily. I know that the Lord will maintain the cause of the afflicted and will execute justice for the needy. Surely the righteous shall give you give thanks to your name and the upright shall dwell in your presence. And so there we see the final shift, right? Where all of a sudden it ends on this very hopeful note where uh, he's kind of, it's imprecatory, like David is calling for things to happen to the wicked. But at the same time, uh, there is this idea that there's the hopeful note at the end of surely the righteous shall give thanks to your name and uh, the upright shall dwell in your presence. So kind of interesting there where you can see how every time we're pausing and reflecting the thoughts of each of the of each of the stanzas are building on each other. Uh, Psalm 141 shows David once again crying out to God for help. We're going to see a lot of this in the the rest of the Psalms that I'm dealing with today. There's going to be a lot of uh, crying out for to God for help. Uh, and David compares uh, um, he compares his prayer to incense and lifting of hands to sacrifice. Uh, and then we also see a great verse showing David's humility, which is this, uh, let a righteous man strike me, it is kindness. Let him rebuke me, it is oil for my head. Let my head not refuse it, yet my prayer is continually against their evil deeds. And so the whole thing, here, the two things I thought were interesting, and we'll see this theme explored a little bit as well. Um, David is getting at the idea, and we're going to explore this a ton when we get to the prophets, that it's not just the sacrifices that God wants. It's the heart behind the sacrifices. It's not, and, and, and particularly, God does not want the empty motions of, yeah, I'm doing the thing that God wants me to do. I'm keeping the festivals. I'm doing the sacrifices. Um, but I'm also just, you know, who cares about the poor? And I'm horribly abusing widows and orphans and all those different things, right? Like God wants both. He wants you to follow. He wants you to worship him in the manner that he says he wants to be worshiped, but he also wants the heart behind it as well. And so David clearly understands this here, which is why I love that he uh, compares his prayer to incense and he compares the lifting of his hands to sacrifice, which are obviously both things that would happen in the tabernacle as worship to God. Uh, Psalm 142 Oh, sorry, 143. We already talked about 142 last week. It's true. Uh, Psalm 143 sees David calling out for deliverance once again. 
And I did think uh, the one pause for a Selah here was interesting. There's only one, but it goes, I remember the days of old. I meditate on all that you have done. I ponder the work of your hands. I stretch out my hands to you. My soul thirsts for you like a parched land, Selah. I think that one actually just might be there to like really examine the metaphor. <laughs> like yeah. if you like, my soul thirsts for you like a parched land, like a land that is in the midst of drought. I think you can just meditate on that verse for mm-hmm. a long time a and long think time. about and think about all of the different ways that that metaphor can apply to our lives. So I thought that was an interesting one there. Psalm 144 shifts back to the familiar theme of David taking refuge in Yahweh. We haven't had these in a little bit, so nope. remember that this well, is because he's been king. That's true. Yeah, he's been he's been cool. He's been chilling. Uh, so it begins with David marveling at the glory of God and marveling how God treats his creation. Uh, and so this is where we get blessed be the Lord, my rock, who trains my hands for war and my fingers for battle. He is my steadfast love and my fortress my stronghold and my deliverer, my shield, and he in whom I take refuge, who subdues people under me. O Lord, what is man that you regard him, or the son of man that you think of him? Man is like a breath. His days are like a passing shadow. And so again, you're getting this idea of David looking at the greatness of God, the glory of God, and at the same time, who are we that you love us. And I, I love the fact that he says, man is like a breath, his days are like a passing shadow. Um, that's a theme that we're going to see explored in great detail later on in the wisdom literature when we get to Ecclesiastes, which we shouldn't be too far from because that's going to be at the, end, yeah, at the end of Solomon there. Um, but the idea that even us with our short, insignificant lives, the creator of the universe loves us individually which is a truth that we, and when I say we, I mean all of us, right? That we should be able to meditate on more frequently than we do. Uh, Psalm 145 once again sees David praising Yahweh. Uh, I love this passage in particular. This is in verse four, but it says, one generation shall commend your works to another and shall declare your mighty acts on the glorious splendor of your majesty and on the, and on your wondrous works. I will meditate. They shall speak of the might of your awesome deeds and declare, and I will declare your greatness. They shall pour forth the, forth the fame of your abundant goodness and shall sing aloud of your righteousness. The Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. The Lord is good to all and his mercy is over all that he has made. And again, I mean, we, we talk, it, it reminds me very much of Deuteronomy where what's the big thing that Moses is telling his people, don't make the same mistakes as your fathers and tell, tell your children, tell the next generation about what God has done here. Um, that's what David is saying here. One generation shall commend your works to another. And that does work for a little bit, but then eventually we see that Israel, um, they, they don't do that to the point where there's a, there's a certain king who takes power, who's awesome, and the law is just forgotten. <laughs> like, yeah. And it's not like it's been that long since the people of Israel were following. Uh, but the, the generation did such a poor job of passing those things along to their children that it's already, it's already gone. It's already forgotten. So True. It's crazy. Um, okay. Well, that wraps it up for not this episode or even my section, but it does wrap it up for the Psalms of David. So yeah. now we are getting out of those and we're going into a couple other authors that, are, that wrote a lot of Psalms. Which if we're being honest in that, like that wraps up David's kingship. We're done. I guess that's, yeah, it's weird to think about, we, isn't it? We kind of finished his his life and reflecting on his life. Because if you remember a couple of weeks ago when we started this journey through the Psalms after we read about David's life, there was like, we don't have times or places when these Psalms were written specifically, but they were penned by David. So it was almost like a, ref, a reflection back into his life. 
Um, but that's the end of David's life. Like, right. that's it. Now we're moving on. I almost feel like, I mean, who am I to question the authors of the reading plan? But I almost feel like I would have liked the passage about David's final words and his death. At this point. Right, right here, right? Where we're kind of wrapping up. Because, you know, we already, we already put him in the tier list and stuff. It's like, it's kind of. Now he doesn't matter. It's like when Samuel dies and it's just like, then Samuel died. Moving on. Like, that's how I feel about David right now. It's just like, well, well, listeners, that's it. We're not going to talk about, we're not going to reference David ever again. That's not true. No, it's not true. All right. So Psalm 88, uh, we're going to shift from the Psalms of David to the sons of Korah. Um, So a little bit of, if you're like me and you don't know off the top of your head who the sons of Korah are, I mean... Why not? One of the most famous Bible characters ever. What? What, what Bible have you been reading? Oh, no, man. I'm just kidding. <laughs> uh, so these men were Levites. Uh, you can find them if, if, if... Now, listeners, I know, obviously, you've been reading the genealogies. You haven't been skipping Absolutely. those. Absolutely. No, so, no one... No one who loves Jesus would skip the genealogy. Exactly. So obviously you remember from the genealogies, just like I did and did not have to look this up. At all. That the Korahites are one of the clans of the Levites. Uh, They are gatekeepers of the tabernacle and later the temple. And we are told that they are also musicians. And so they they are part of... um, the ministry of song that David establishes. And this is also pretty evidenced by the fact that they've, they've authored a few songs. So the sons of Korah are particularly, they're from one particular clan within the tribe of Levi. So good deal. Uh, Psalm 88 is an individual lament. It is written by Heman the Ezraite and uh, Ezraite, you know, that's He-Man's in here. He-Man, woman hater club. (laughs) Oh, that was a that was a That's uh, little rascals. Little rascals. There you go. Yes. I couldn't. I couldn't come up. He with man. He man is a uh, old school cartoon vintage character. It was that was you, before your time. Yeah. It was, well, yeah. Obviously, I know he man. Was he was he your time when you were a kid? Was he big? Yep. Okay. So because like when I was a kid, it was, it was late '80s, is what it was. Right. I mean, he was probably mid to late '80s. I was born in '83. So, so I was like mid. Yeah. So I was like you mid to mid late '90s. 90s. Yeah. yeah. That's when it's happening. Yeah. He man was about ten years. He man was over. What are you gonna do? I watched like all cool go, kids. Go Power Rangers. I didn't. I wasn't allowed to watch Power Rangers. What? But I watched. I don't. Know. Yeah, Tom I, and Annette. What's wrong with yeah, you? I couldn't watch Dragon Tales. I couldn't watch a lot. I don't of know things, what Dragon Tales. Is. It's like yeah, it has magic in it, so obviously it would have corrupted me. Yeah, to Lord know, of the Rings. You can't watch end. that. I watched Liberty's Kids, which was awesome. Uh, it was a PBS cartoon about the Revolutionary Why War. Why am I not surprised? Dude. You and PBS, bro. You and documentaries. Like you probably I have, you lived on PBS. Didn't I you? have a core memory of running into my my well my parents' room, but my mom was the one who was home, just distraught because Benedict Arnold betrayed America, and I didn't know it happened. Right? And so like <laughs> I, like obviously every adult is like, yeah, Benedict Arnold he betrays the U.S. Oh but dude, my goodness, I did not. Dustin Hoffman sold it. I I thought he was awesome, and then all of a sudden, the, like it was like my whole life was ripped away from me at that moment. And I was like, who can I not trust anyone now? Is That's the Marquis ridiculous. de Lafayette going to betray and us? And you as just well? heard Evan's individual lament, much like the Psalm. Well, fine, fine. I guess we'll get back. Did you to see the that? Bible. Did you see that transition? That, that was, was beautiful. I'm brilliant. People. All right. So Psalm 88 starts. Starting in verse 13, uh, it says, But I, O Lord, cry out to you. In the morning my prayer comes before you. O Lord, why do you cast my soul away? Why do you hide your face from me? Afflicted and close to death from my youth up, I suffer your terrors. I am helpless. Your wrath has swept over me. Your dreadful assaults destroy me. They surround me like a flood all day long. They close in on me together. You have caused my beloved and my friend to shun me. My companions have become darkness. Uh, yeah, that feels really That's sad. That feels really Joby to me. I was putting out like, I mean, you could really just throw that into any of Job's laments. Did Job write that? Yeah, I know. Uh, so, but yeah, I mean, and I do, I do appreciate that the Psalms create space for the idea of 
bringing our pain to the Lord and not having it, you don't, it, not all of the Psalms that bring pain to God are immediately followed by like, but, but it's okay. Cause I have a great attitude right now. Like, no, it's like, it's a very real experience of what human pain and human emotion looks like. Um, and so I love that. It's not just David. Like here we see he man, the Korahite, Kor, the son of Korah and Ezraite uh, also lamenting about essentially the darkness that he's feeling and the affliction that he feels from God in this moment. Uh, Psalm 89 is written by Ethan, the Ezraite. So of relation of some sort, at least in the same <laughs> clan. Uh, and it celebrates the reign of David and Yahweh's promise to his descendants. And it praises God at the start. So I put, speaking of Joby, this one kind of feels like that way too. Uh, it says, O Lord, God of hosts, who is mighty as you are, O Lord, with your faithfulness all around you, you rule the raging seas when it when its waves rise, you still them. You crushed Rahab like a carcass. You scattered your enemies with your mighty arm. The heavens are yours. The earth also is yours. The world and all that is in it, you have founded them. The north and the south, you have created them. Tabor and Hermon joyously praise your name. Uh, and so the reason I said a little bit, Joby, and this one's not as much, but it references Rahab. And if you're thinking to yourself, wait, Rahab was a good person. Why did God crush her like a carcass? Wrong Rahab. So there is a... Uh, <laughs> She was the, in Dave, Jesus's line. Why would you? Exactly. So there is there is a sea monster of myth in, Mesop- in Meth- Mesopotamian myth of the time that is alluded to multiple times in the Bible. And essentially, when it says that, it's it's talking. It's an it's a poetic way of saying that God is over the religion and cultures of the area. So God is Yahweh is the one true God, not. Um, Rahab is kind of the idea. And and again, when we when you go back to Mesopotamian creation myths, it's almost always out of water. And so it's another thing where we can get in Genesis 1, where it says, the, and the spirit of the Lord hovered over the, pace, the face of the waters. What that's saying is that, no, it's not that there's chaos waters that Yahweh had to do battle with and subdue them. And it was touch and go there for a moment. No, it was that God is in complete control and he mm-hmm. created the universe and it is it is the way that he created it. So yep. there you go. Uh, and then also in this, I, I thought this was really good. We also see the promise of God to David take hold. And this is his offspring shall endure forever. His throne, as long as the sun before me, like the moon, it shall be established forever. A faithful witness in the skies. And if you're thinking to yourself, wait a second, the throne of David is not active today. How is it lasting forever? Well, listen, let me tell you, there's a very famous descendant of David who uh, is on the throne for all eternity. So... Who's that? And his name is Jesus. Oh, that's right. Just kidding. <laughs> I keep acting like, I don't know, like we shouldn't spoil the Bible, but I'm like, no, we're here. We're like we're reading the Bible. And, and if you don't know Jesus is part of the Bible, hey, you know, hey, thanks for listening. <laughs> so sorry for spoiling that one. But I feel like that's probably like, that's, he's like the big guy, you know, he's the, the main character. So yeah. What are you going to do? Exactly. Uh, Psalm 50 is written by, I should say, you know, the triune Godhead Yahweh is the main character, not specifically the son, but you know, I didn't want to be too heretical there. Uh, Psalm 50 is written by Asaph, who was a Levite in charge of the music ministry during the reigns of David and, and, and some of the reign of Solomon. So he's a, you know, real specific person. He's not mm-hmm. like the sons of Korah as like kind of like a group, uh, but he's very similar story. He's a Levite who is involved in that music ministry as well. Uh, Psalm 50 deals with the justice of God. And it, once again, it gets at that theme that we'll be exploring in the prophets that God is more concerned with the heart behind sacrifice than the sacrifice itself. Uh, in Psalm 73, it's another fascinating, uh, and it's another Psalm of Asaph, and it deals with, uh, it's a really interesting uh, theme of stumbling in sin, but in particular envy 
and then God's faithfulness in the midst of that. And so I'll, I'll, I'll put out a couple of highlights here, so you'll see what I mean. So starting in verse one, it says, truly God is the is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped for I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Um, this is a theme that goes, I think, I think it's a little bit underexplored. Um, and I, I, I hesitate to say that because it, it is explored, particularly in the wisdom literature, right? And especially when we get into Ecclesiastes, this is going to be a thing that we're going to get into a lot. Um, but the idea of being jealous of the wicked because they're cheating people in order to get – they're doing things wrong. They're sinning in order to get more wealth in this life, um, which you can do, right? Like you can be dishonest and you will make, more, you will make more money probably as long as you don't get caught. You'll make more money than if you're doing things honestly. Um, and so looking at that and being jealous, and I, I love the honesty here of Asaph just talking about how that's how he felt. Like he was looking at the wicked and like, man, I wish I could have what the wicked have. Um, but then showing l- later on, um, we see God that he rejoices in God's faithfulness to him, even in the midst of that stumble and in that envy. This is in verse 21. It says, when my soul was embittered and when I pricked in heart, I was brutish and I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast towards you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterward, you will receive me to glory. Whom have, have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but, the, but God is my strength of my heart, is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. So I, I, don't know, I, just, I thought that was really beautiful. And it's very unique among the Psalms. I yeah. don't remember reading another Psalm that kind of reads, that reads quite like that. So really cool. Psalm 73. Uh, in Psalm 74, this is my final psalm for the day before we move on to Aaron's portion. Final countdown. By the way, the Tetris movie is really good. So that's, I haven't seen it yet. Uh, it's, it's a good time. It, that's one of the songs. and That's like the main song in the climax of the movie is why I was thinking about it. Um, okay. So Psalm 74 is another psalm of Asaph, and it is a lament crying out to God for deliverance. Uh, it speaks to the people of Israel being purchased by God long ago and asks God to come and defend them. Um, I also love this thing, right? Because I think sometimes, and we do, we do this today where we kind of forget about past generations a little bit. Um, it's one reason... Part of it is because I'm just an old man in my heart. But one of the reasons I like, another one of the reasons that I like hymns is because it's a reminder. And I always tell people, it's a reminder that there were Christians before the nineties. Like, cause I think most of our worship is like at the oldest sometimes we'll get to like early Hillsong and Darlene Shack and all of that stuff. Um, but it's a reminder that like, no, like in, um, when we're reading of a, ama- when we're reading Amazing Grace, it's a reminder that in the late 1700s and early 1800s, people were reflecting on the incredible grace of God. Um, Be Thou My Vision was written in like the <laughs> before the year 1000, and it was in Gaelic for a long time. And it's one of the most beautiful songs ever written. Um, and so I think Psalm 74's reflection on the fact that the people of Israel, their ransom was paid and that they were purchased by God long ago is something that is important to remember as they move forward into the future. Uh, well, that wraps it up for my Psalms this week. Aaron has a bunch more that we're getting to. And then we're going to- Aren't you excited? And then we're out of the Psalms. Aaron has some narrative at the very end of his portion. Yes. Uh, but before we do that, we do want to take a moment to say, hey, you know, if you haven't left us a five-star review yet, particularly on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Do it. Yes. Do it. It's super helpful. Uh, it gets the podcast out there to more people. And on Apple Podcasts, you can leave a written review. Uh, and if you read it, or sorry, if you write one, we will read it on air. 
Uh, we didn't get one this week, though. So, you no, know. No, not this week. What are you going to do? But we had, a, we had a good run. We had a good run. I was just going to say, like, it's been fun to have to delay some review readings because we had so many in a yep. few weeks. So. so no complaints. But if you're if you're thinking to yourself, hey, I would love to write something and have them read it on the air, then you know, you can you can do that. So do there you it. Go. Yeah. And it's been fun even locally to have some of the some of you who listen with us uh just tell us in person how much you enjoy the podcast and uh have just appreciated being part of the community. So thanks for doing that. Uh we love uh that you're listening and continue to be a part of this community. So uh, help it grow by leaving a review um, as Evan said, there are a ton more uh, Psalms that we're going to read, uh, and we do finish up our first round because there is another round coming, just so you know. Ooh. In July, we'll hit another 12-day run where we have nothing but Psalms. Really? So you're wow. welcome for that. Anticipate that. It is coming. Psalms is a big book. But we have a few weeks, a few months before that happens. Uh, and so we're picking back up here. Asaph is, uh, he's the author that writes the rest of the Psalms that we're reading this week. Um and, and again, I just remind you, I know uh, my dear friend Kathy told me to stop telling her to cl- slow down by using Selah, um, but really try and be intentional about reading these um, and stay present in each Psalm, almost as if you take, I mean, even if you have to take a breath, a three second pause at the end of each Psalm, just to kind of give yourself time to process, I think is really important, especially as we're reading so many Psalms, um, because I feel like when we read the narrative portion, it's easier to slow down or, or, or stop Uh, but not Psalms. Psalms is a little bit more chaotic, I feel like. So uh, Psalm 75, written by Asaph as well. It is a a hymn of praise uh, that thanks God for the wondrous works he has done for Israel uh, and then celebrates the fact that he is the judge of all the earth and will in his own time put down the wicked and uh, bring up, lift up the faithful. Uh, It teaches a great lesson of faith in God's sovereignty, his rule, uh, and that oftentimes seems to be invisible, which I think is really good because sometimes it is really easy to fall victim to uh, neglecting or or missing uh, God's sovereignty and the rule because he's not always present in front of us. Uh, So Asaph does a great job in Psalm 75, uh, celebrating God's faithfulness, celebrating his sovereignty and good. Uh, goodness. Uh, we see Psalm 76 uh, is a psalm that celebrates Zion as the place that God has chosen to dwell uh, and the capital uh, of the people he has chosen to bless and protect. So this is the main hub, uh, and Asaph is celebrating Zion as the city God decided to to establish as his place. Um, it is suited to be read in the context in which God has delivered Zion from invaders. Um, and then for the those who are reciting or reading uh, this, there's marvel that comes uh, when being anchored to uh, the reality that uh, God's people got to go to Zion to, to worship God, that it was actually a a privilege to go to the place where God dwells, the city where God dwells. Uh, so that's the heartbeat of Psalm 76. Psalm 77 is a community limit written by Asaph. It's connected to a time uh, when God's people are in a low condition, uh, the depths of despair. Uh, it acknowledges that the reason for the trouble may actually be <laughs> some of the fault of the people. Uh, in light of that, uh, what you know, I'm just thankful he admits it because sometimes it's really easy to point the finger, right? Um but in light of the fact that the psalm is written with that in mind, uh, it calls the audience to remember and to meditate on God, and then also to meditate and reflect on how things once were when they were better. Uh, and then it's meant to, as you do that and reflect, and, and then I think this is a practical thing. I think um, what happens in this moment or what happens with the intention of this is not only to reflect on God and how good he is, how faithful he is, but also when there was times that were better, it's meant to build confidence in God's provision for the future of his people. Uh, and that's just practical for us today too. So even as we read Psalm 77, 
be uh, reflecting on how good God has been. Uh, be reflecting on the times that God's provision, his faithfulness, his blessings have been abundant, where there's been good seasons and good times of life, uh, because it's supposed to build confidence for the fact that in the future, God's going to continue to be faithful because he doesn't change. He's the same. So um, you see that underlying thing there, theme there in Psalm 77. Psalm 78 uh, is a very long psalm uh, compared to the ones we've been reading re- lately, uh, and that's because it's a more of a historical psalm, meaning uh, its goal is to relate the truths of in history to the next generation. This is a, a one where you hand off and you remind the next generation of God's uh, work, of what God has done throughout history. Um, it has references to the Pentateuch, which uh, for a uh, reminder, it is the, that's the first five books of the Old Testament. Uh, and so it has references to the Old Testament and in the, the Pentateuch. It has references to the book of Joshua. It has references to the book of Judges and also the book of Samuel. Um, and in doing this, it's building a foundation uh, that is strengthened by God's provision in his people, uh, for his people, God's provision for his people. And so you see that in Psalm 78, a little bit of a longer read, but it's good to reflect and remember God's faithfulness so that way it encourages for the future. Psalm 79 uh, is a community community lament. Uh, so it's one that is a corporate, uh, it's something that would be recited in a corporate connection and identity. Uh, and it reflects on a great disaster that fell upon Jerusalem. We don't have the exact situation. Um, some of the study Bibles that I've read say it's a strong possibility it's referring to the Babylonian destruction. Uh, so if that's the case, it's actually read, it would have actually happened a, quite a bit later in our reading plan. But because it was written by Asaph, who was a contemporary, actually he was put in position by David, which is why we're reading at the end of David's life, the Psalm of Asaph. Um, there is, there's not clear connection as far as when this was written or when disaster fell upon them, uh, but it will recount the violence and impiety of the Gentile conquerors uh, and then asks how long God intends to put up with such things. Um, it does show this expectation that Israel has of being shown better treatment than the other nations because they're a covenant people of God. Uh, but because the disaster came upon Israel, uh, it was basically because they didn't own the covenant with true faith as well. Uh, and so the psalm confesses that it will ask for forgiveness and then pledge renewed faithfulness, which we feel and have read all throughout our reading plan so far this year. Um, but it, the whole idea of God forgive us, I feel like the judge cycles come into play. God forgive us. You were right. We were wrong. We're renewing our faith to you. And just kidding. Um, so Psalm Psalm uh, 79 there reflects that kind of same thing, um, but gives some anticipation there as well. Psalm 80 is a community lament as well, where at least part of, if not all the people, have received harsh treatment from the Gentiles. It's almost like this is a hardship season for the Psalms. Um, It requests, this Psalm requests that God would restore his people and let his face shine upon them so they may be saved. Um, Psalm 81 is a Psalm that resembles the Old Testament prophet oracles, which what I mean by that is there's the goal in the Old Testament prophecies is not to tell necessarily what is coming or the future. That's not necessarily the the entirety, the entirety of what prophecy is. Um, but it is the the goal of revealing God's word to his people where there's the goal of challenging God's people to, to return to covenant faithfulness or maintain covenant faithfulness. Um, and then also reflect on the blessings and curses of doing so. Uh, so this Psalm reviews the basic history of the covenant. It charges Israel with unfaithfulness and then urges them to embrace the covenant once more. Psalm 82, uh, and I know I'm cranking through this. I'm going to read a couple uh, here in a little bit. 
Uh, I'm going to read this psalm and then I've got the narrative portion that I'm excited to jump back into. Um, don't, yeah, don't you try and hide it. You're just trying to get to the narrative. I am. Yeah. So uh, I, I, I'll be honest with you. I've struggled reading these psalms in the reading plan so far. I've been the guy. I keep saying everyone should slow down because I'm not slowing down. <laughs> I'm just trying to crank through them. So uh, don't judge me, yeah, but po- that's just the truth. Poetry so. is a harder read than, it, yeah, than the narrative for sure. Except for someone who loves Job and has learned to, to well, love, even, love poetry because of Job. Even me who loves, I love a good section of biblical poetry is more difficult to, to read the narrative for sure. So true. Uh, psalm 82, psalm, this psalm enables the readers to get a glimpse into the encouragement God's people could draw uh, from as many who would recite this psalm were pretty much socially weak and lowly in Israel. Uh, so there's an encouragement that that God's people uh, who historically had p- lower positions. They were not as well off. They were not wealthy and rich by any means. They were oftentimes more of the lowly, impoverished uh, people in uh, the, at that time, modern day uh, civilization. Um, but they would take courage and be supported and uplifted because of God's faithfulness, because they were God's people. And so they could take encouragement from that. Uh, they, According to this psalm, they were to take courage in the face of unjust rule, uh, which had potential to cause them to yield to cooperate with the injustice of their wicked rulers, meaning simply um, they would compromise and settle to follow along with secular realities, with the world, the wicked, uh, and their injustices. They would compromise their integrity, their beliefs um, be, for the sake of uh, of comfort. Not that it, would, it was comfortable, but for the sake of conflict. They don't want to engage in conflict. Yeah. Secular realities, more like secular realities. Am I right? right? Oh, oh. Uh, uh, and it continues in Psalm 82, where to test even the most powerful rulers must die and face God's final judgment. So there's this plea and this challenge to remain faithful to God's ways, because even the most powerful rulers, uh, they will die and face God's judgment. Uh, it also should remind uh, those who hold political or social, social office to use that power in service to others, uh, especially to protect those who are easiest to exploit. Uh, the people are God. And this is one thing that I thought was really good that you get this challenge as well in this statement. It's almost like a, a an exclamation point, I would say, on the, the psalm itself. It says, the, in essence, the people are God are to model an, what an ideal society looks like uh, with their justice visible to all so that all nations might come to know the true God. And this is where I would say historically the modern church right now has dropped the ball. Um, we have not b- modeled an ideal society. Our, our the real justice has not been evident to all, which would be anchored back to God and the creator. Uh, and so we've done a disservice in some respects to the kingdom mentality or philosophy of the world, that we, not the philosophy, the kingdom reality of the world we live in. Um, so that's where I think we can get a challenge from reading Psalm 82. Um, there are, it's eight verses. And so I'm going to read this Psalm because I just think it's, it's simple and it's interesting how much you can see and read as you stop to slow down and read through. It says this, God stands in divine, in the divine assembly. He pronounces judgment among the gods. How long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? Selah. Again, a time to pause and reflect. This is a psalm is calling this out. How long will you uh, judge unjustly? How long? Uh, sorry, this is God speaking to his, the the, hum, the humanity, to, to the wicked. Um, no, I think I'm wrong again. Dang it. It's God's people calling out. How long are you going to judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? That's the the challenge of the, uh, the opening premise here, the challenge of God's people reflecting and calling out to God. There's evil. Why are you letting it happen? Why are you not judging it? Uh, and then they call out, provide justice to the need, for the needy and the fatherless. Uphold the rights of the oppressed and the destitute. Rescue the poor and needy. Save them from the power of the wicked. They do not know or understand. They wander in darkness. 
All the foundations of the earth are shaken. I said, you are gods. You are all sons of the Most High. However, you will die like humans and fall like any other ruler. Rise up, God. Judge the earth, for all the nations belong to you. Uh, And so there's just this challenge you see even in the middle there, the idea of rescue the poor, provide justice for the needy and the fatherless. And it's this idea in this picture that God's people are meant to have an ideal form of community that rallies around righteous justice uh, and the call to, of God's people to him saying, hey, how long are you going to let the wicked continue to get away with what they're doing? Uh, and so then you see this challenge, however, everyone's going to die like humans and fall under any other ruler. Uh, and so he calls for God to rise up and judge the earth because he is the righteous judge um, whom God's people anchor to. Uh, and so I, it's a, it, it really is a very simple but beautiful psalm. Uh, to read uh, and very challenging to uh, Psalm 83, which is the last Psalm of the week. Uh, it says this, com- it's a community lament uh, is geared towards the challenge of God's people uh, as they are being threatened uh, by people. Uh, it doesn't say exactly who, uh, but people who are aiming to destroy them. Uh, the Psalm carries the prayer that God would make such enemies fail miserably, putting to shame being put to shame and perishing so they, they might come to the Lord. I thought that was a really interesting piece too. Um, the, the, the intent of God's uh, judgment, the, the intent of calling God to bring shame and put them and let them perish is that they might, so they might not, so they might come to know the Lord, um, which again shows a kingdom perspective that I thought was really good and interesting too. So that's what wraps up the Psalms this week. Um, and then we shift in to our first day and only day of narrative this week. Boom, boom, um, boom. Where this is where we really do have the button up of David's life, of his influence, um, where we see the sons of Kor, where we see Asaph, where we see Ethan, um, uh, some of the authors of Psalm. They're carrying on some of David David's influence in the Psalms. Uh, and then we jump into 1 Chronicles 29, verses 23 to 25, and then also 2 Chronicles 1, 1. Uh, and we see... And we'll also read First Kings this week as well. Uh, but we're told once more uh, in the first section here of First Chronicles 29 uh, that Solomon was again anointed king. Uh, and it's important because this happened after David died. Um, if you remember a few weeks back when we talked about uh, Adonijah, however you say his name, Adonijah, um, That's trying to take on the kingship. He's trying to, to, to step in. We'll get some of the glimpses of what's happened since then here today. Um, but Solomon was anointed king. Uh, because there was wind of Adonijah going after and trying to set himself up, much like Absalom did. Uh, And so then David puts Solomon in the kingship. He has Zadok, uh, Zadok the priest. He has uh, Abiathar, no, not Abiathar, sorry, Abiathar was with Adonijah um, because there's punishment for that. Right. Um, But he has Bathsheba. He has uh, Nathan, the prophet, was the other guy in there has them kind of step up, uh, anoint Solomon as king. And so then after David passes away, Solomon is again anointed king before all the people. Uh, and this is where we see uh, the full handoff and transition happen. All of David's men, all of the leaders pledge their allegiance to Solomon now. Uh, so now Solomon's not only king, but officially beginning his reign without David, because there was still some influence that David had while he was still alive. So there is a significant moment of re uh, anointing him king publicly, everybody shows their allegiance to him, allegiance to him for the most part, uh, and then Solomon uh, is then set apart as king. Uh, in First Kings chapter two, th- verse thirteen, uh, we go all the way to First Kings chapter three, verse four. Uh, we'll find that Solomon begins the process of fulfilling his promise 
to David's last words regarding Abiathar, Joab, and Shimei. Uh, but first, Adonijah jumps into the scene. Uh, again, just a reminder, he was Solomon's brother. Uh, this is the one who tried to be king, uh, but was usurped by David when he handed the reins over to Solomon. Um, and so he shows back up and then he asks Bathsheba this. Uh, chapter 13 of, no, verse 13 of chapter 2. Uh, I'm going to read all the way to verse 25 because this this section is pretty it's pretty funny and, and significant. Uh, it says this, Now Adonijah, son of Haggith, came to Bathsheba, Solomon's mother. She asked, Do you come peacefully? Peacefully, he replied. Now remember, he didn't always act peacefully. So there was a certain level of what's your intent. Uh, verse 14, it says, And then asked, uh, May I talk with you? Go ahead, she answered. You know the kingship was mine, he said. All Israel expected me to be king. But then the kingship was turned over to my brother. The Lord gave it to him. So now I have just one request of you. Don't turn me down. She said, go on. He replied, please speak to King Solomon since he won't turn you down. Let him give me Abishag, the Shunammite, as a wife. Very well, Bathsheba said, replied. I will speak to you or speak to the king for you. So Bathsheba went to King Solomon to speak to him of Adonijah. The king stood up to greet her, bowed to her, sat down on his throne, and had a throne place for the king's mother. So she sat down at his right hand. Then she said, I have just one small request of you. Don't turn me down. Go ahead and ask, mother, the king replied, for I won't turn you down. So she said, let Abishag, the Shunammite, be given to your brother Adonijah as his wife. King Solomon answered his mother, why are you requesting Abishag, the Shunammite, for Adonijah? Since he is my elder brother, you might as well ask for the kingship for him for the priest Abiathar and for Joab, son of Zariah. Then King Solomon took an oath by the Lord. May God punish me and do so severely if Adonijah has not, been made, has not made this request at the cost of his life. And now as the Lord lives, the one who established me, seated me on the throne of my father, David, and made me a dynasty as he promised, I swear Adonijah will be put to death today. Then King Solomon dispatched Benaiah, son of Jehoadiah, who struck down Adonijah, and he died. So Benaniah, Benaniah is still in leadership. He's still a trusted hand. And there's a, there's a few things happening right here that I think are worth going into for a few seconds. First off, Abishag, again, this has been a couple weeks, so I'm going to remind you. Abishag is the virgin who attended David on his deathbed. It was the one where she went in. He was cold. She would go in. They would lie together. But it was very clear, if you remember, that they did not sleep together. Wink. <laughs> Just very clear, okay? Uh, but... She still was naked with David. She so there's still she is not maybe not been uh, unvirginized if I can say that. she's not had sex yet. Um, but she was she was David's another one of David's women. I guess I, I don't know how else yeah to say not it. Like, on the level of like a concubine correct and certainly not a wife. So but. there was already a relationship. There was already an establishment of who she belonged to. If I can say that without it's remember modern or his. Ancient history, women were more viewed as property than anything else. All that to say, to be given her as a wife to Adonijah was a was purely a political move. To assume a kingship back in the ancient times, you, you would also assume the king's wives. You would also take them on as your wives. Uh, and the shiftiness of this moment by Adonijah was... Be, was thinking because she didn't lay with David. Maybe Solomon wasn't naive enough. This is my speculation, but I think there's something here. There, here. Uh, but I think what was happening is Adonijah was still jockeying for the throne. He was still jockeying for a way to undermine Solomon, so all of Israel would turn and follow him. Because even as he said to his mom, "Hey," or I guess not his mom, but his stepmom, whatever. Uh, 
you know the throne was mine. It was taken from me. Uh, and so he's politically trying to jockey and take and take someone who was not, quote unquote, David's wife from uh, intimacy, from sexual consummation, but still would have been property of David. It would have been undercutting Solomon's leadership. Uh, and so he thinks that Solomon's naive enough to allow this to happen, which would in turn weaken his rulership and his reign. So that's the first thing happening. Yeah, it wouldn't necessarily weaken the reign of Solomon, but it would make it would make Adonijah um, a better candidate to take the throne were Solomon to ever fall in popularity. Basically, if that makes sense. But I, but I, but I think that this would also would have also called to question his ability to lead. Maybe it would have called maybe. to question because remember Solomon was fairly young. He wasn't he wasn't old and wise, um, and. We know this, many of us know this, one of the famous things about Solomon that is a credit to him is his willingness or his desire to ask for wisdom when God shows him, which we get to that at the very end of the week's reading. Right. After um, he goes on his godfather so, rampage. So Yes, exactly. So uh, so we come to that in a second. So I think even that, I think this even shows a little bit of indication about the brilliance of Solomon's request uh, for wisdom. Because I there's part of me that wonders if he was viewed as a little bit naive or inexperienced or not necessarily going to be a great ruler. Uh, so anyways, Adonijah is jockeying for position still, trying to do a little shady shift um, to gain a little bit of momentum, uh, a little bit of, of credibility to usurp Solomon from taking the throne. He ends up dying because of it. Um, so Benaiah goes and kills him and Adonijah is now no longer a threat. Uh, the second thing I think here is important, even as a simple sidebar highlight, is Bathsheba. She is shown uh, by this exchange to have much more influence and respect as a ruler and a voice in the king's ear um, that she wasn't. If you remember um, throughout, well, not even really, like some of David's wives, none of them were, were fierce rulers. None of them gave influence. Um, not many of them did. Uh, but Bathsheba, for whatever reason, has been given influence. And even by the simple placing a chair at the right hand of the king for the queen's mother, it shows a certain level of credibility to Bathsheba as a ruler and an influencer. Uh, and even for Adonijah to go to her, he knew he could never gain an audience, but he understood the influence and the counsel that Bathsheba gives to Solomon. And so for her, it validates her as not just um, a, a good looking dime piece that's that David slept with and committed adultery with, um, but that she was also a very fierce and powerful ruler uh, for the king as well. Uh, and then finally, I thought this was an interesting thing as well that, that, and I already kind of alluded to it, but this the idea that there's potential that it could have alluded to the, um, the naivety of Solomon um, and then the potential, I put in quotes, like the dumbness of him um, because he didn't have it all figured out. He relied on on Bathsheba. He relied on certain things. And he was young when he assumed the throne. Uh, and so I think there's a few things going on here uh, before Solomon even gets to his fulfilling my father's death uh, deathbed wishes. Um, it shows that there's some interesting dynamics here at play. And I thought that was a really interesting one. Uh, I had, and I'll be honest with you, I had to look up and remind myself, okay, who is Abishag again? Because uh, I totally forgot. Because uh, it feels like it's been months since I've read it. And a really just an unfortunate name as well. It's, that's true. The Shunammite. We'll just say the Shunammite. Um, so that's the first section there that happens when Adonijah tries to jockey for the throne again in more of a, a sneaky way. He ends up paying for his life. Uh, we see in, in verses 26 to 27 of chapter 2 that Solomon is dealing with Abiathar where he removes uh, him and banishes him. 
um, to his own his own hometown. He can't leave, um, and it it what Solomon is now doing is there is some of this. I'm removing the threats for those who are going to try and take my throne. Um, and that's part of the kingship too. Like in, in Old Testament, we talked about this a couple of weeks ago, uh, but it was this fight for the throne that anybody could come, take over the throne, take over leadership just by jockeying or, or taking out those around him. So Absalom did the same thing. Right. Or at least at least Solomon is removing people who he thinks could be power players in an attempt to Because they've already shown right. that they have some kind of credibility and influence among people. So Abathar, Abiathar is thrown and banished. Uh, and it even shows a little bit of mercy here. Like he even says, hey, you once carried the Ark of the Covenant. You once ruled with my father. You're banished to your home. Don't ever come out. Um, then we see in chapter 28, verse 34, that Joab heard all this was going down and understood his life is at stake. Um, and so he fled to the tabernacle, uh, much like Adonijah, when he, Adonijah and Solomon first were jockeying, or when Adonijah was originally jockeying for position. So he did what Adonijah does. He ran to the tabernacle, uh, gr- hung out by the horns of the altar, um, which I had to look, I looked this up. It, it, it comes with a myth that says, if I'm at the horns of the altar or in that vicinity, I'm safe from any kind of repercussions. Um, that's not actually true. Um, and so when we see, because I actually kind of wrestle with like, well, wait a minute, because Ben and I, and I'll get to this. Adonijah ran away, uh, asked for mercy. Uh, Joab said, or not Joab, sorry. Joab asked for mercy. Joab fled, ran away, asked for mercy. Solomon said, no, nah, I'm good. Sends Beniah. Beniah goes to the tabernacle, goes where he's at and kills him. Um, and so the, I, I wrestled with this for a moment because he's at the tabernacle with the horns of the altar. Like this is like a sacred space almost. Mm-hmm. Um, but the myth was that if I go there, no no harm can happen to me. Uh, that's not actually true. Uh, it was it was a pagan myth. It was not a a, a God fearing myth, if that makes sense. An Israelite truth. Um, and so Benaiah goes, kills Joab. Joab's dead. I guess I so like two out of three done. Yeah, I got oh yeah yeah I guess finish the finish the third, and then we'll we'll talk a little bit about how we feel about. This. So the number three, uh, we see in verse thirty six to forty six, we find. Solomon confronting Shammai. Shammai, Shmi, how Shmi? Mr. Um, Shmi. But we find him, remember, Shammai was the one that came out and cursed David. And then David came, as David was leaving because Absalom was taking over the throne, uh, Shammai comes out, curses him. He's a, he's a, uh, uh, one of the, of the tribe of the people of Saul, uh, a Benjaminite. Uh, and then when David comes back, he runs to David and repents. He apologizes. David shows him mercy. Um, but the problem is now he can't be trusted. Uh, so David on his deathbed told him, don't forget about Shammai. He's going to be shifty. He's deceitful. Uh, keep your eye on him. Uh, and so Solomon, I think, again, shows a little bit of mercy Says and banishes him to his home and home alone. You can't go anywhere, he says. You need to stay from them. The moment you leave the walls of your home is the moment you're going to die. Well... He leaves because one of his animals runs away or doesn't run away, but wanders off. He goes after, finds and brings the animal back. It's reported to Solomon. Hey, he left and Solomon shows up and calls him out on it. Said, didn't I tell you if you didn't leave, you'd live. And now that you didn't, now you're dead. And so then he dies. And that is where he finishes the trifecta, if you will, right. of removing the threats, potential threats for his throne. It's like the scene in The Godfather where they're asking Say Michael- Say hello to my little friend. No, that's Scarface. I know, I'm just But kidding. when he goes, uh, do you renounce Satan? He's like, I renounce him. Meanwhile, his goons are going around and just shooting all the cops in the head. And, and I, don't know. I, I don't know how we feel. We might differ wildly on this. Um, I think I think this is bad. I think, like I, I don't think there's any mercy shown 
to Shimei because I even think, though he's been banished when he should be killed. So here's here's what I think. I don't think he should have been killed. I think <clears throat> I think David already showed him mercy. So I think I think what Solomon is doing in this moment is he cannot renege on the mercy that his father showed him. So you can't hmm. just have him executed. I think he's purposely putting him into into a situation where he knows he will eventually break it and give him the pretense in order to have him killed, if that makes sense. So, because unlike Joab and Abiathar, who did legitimately do things worthy of punishment, Shimei, since he received mercy, we don't have any record that he did. Um, I also just think- That's interesting. And so that's my that's my thought. I, I also just, I, I famously have a very negative view of Solomon. So oh, as, totally. as much as I love the books of the Bible that he penned. 100%. Um, but I think for, for me, it comes down to- what separates David so much is remember, like he he could have taken the throne by killing Saul, and it, that would have been done twice. He could have done this, and he would have been welcomed into the streets, and it, it would have been absolutely fine because because David is beloved in Israel for for all that he had done. Um, but what David chooses to do is to put it into the hands of the Lord and say, "No, I'm not taking this throne for myself. Yahweh is giving me this throne." Um, and it, it bums me out that the advice that David gives his son is the opposite of, he does not tell Agreed. his son, let, da- let Yahweh give you the throne that he, because God chose Solomon. Um, he doesn't say, God has chosen you, let him establish your throne. He tells him, here's who you need to take out in order to make sure that your throne is established, slash, here's who I want you to kill because yeah. I regret giving them mercy when I did. Um, and so, I and so Sol- Solomon... He's uh, take out the tier list for a second because when I say this, uh, uh, this is what I'm referencing. <laughs> Solomon is a great king and not a good man for most. For depending, I think I think he does um, have a turn at the end of his life when, when he pens Ecclesiastes. Um, but I think again, if you enter, if you open up a history book, Solomon reads like one of the great kings of history. He comes to power, he yeah. kills all of his political enemies, and he ushers in a period of prosperity for Israel that lasts for for his entire reign, which is. Uh, which is incredible. Yeah, it, like like Solomon does a lot of great things for the nation, um, but I think what we're getting at is that he he he. Um, what separates David was his relationship with the Lord, um, and the, and his spiritual leadership as a king. And Solomon seems to have very little of that. And I think what this is showing is that Solomon is very willing to take power yeah. in the way that everyone else takes power. I think, and I and I don't I don't know if I disagree with anything you said. Um, the one caveat I would put in here is kind of the the interesting like potential aha moment I had as I'm reading through some of this the conversation. The, the, there's a reason why I chose to read the Bathsheba account with Ananijah mm-hmm. um, because I do think it shows that there is a certain level of uh, of naivety of ignorant. Not I don't even think ignorance. I think he was young and he wasn't ready to rule. And David's hand was forced at the end of his life because Adonijah was jockeying for the throne and David didn't want Adonijah to, to rule right. because we, because he wasn't the right guy. Um, and, and I think he, and correct me if I'm wrong. I, I don't know why I can't remember this. Like David said, or God said to David, Solomon's going to build a temple. Uh, or did you just say his son? I'd have to look that up. I don't, I don't, I don't recall either. So at the end of the day, David David directs Solomon. I there's part of me that thinks because he was so 
unwise because he was so young and he didn't know any better. So I think David, yes, was trying to protect the, the, the throne. I think David was directing, this is how you protect the throne. This is who you need to take out. This is who you need to, to, to banish. So I don't know if it's necessarily David saying, I regret giving mercy to Shammai. I think it's more so he can't be trusted. And, yeah, I, I don't and, think he's a threat though. Like Joab and Abiathar, but here's the deal, though. Like he, but so was Shammai. Like when David was leaving, he was absolutely. He's a he's a, a, a from the family of Saul. Right. He's a Benjaminite. He could have rallied that that group to then help usurp David. He was already in that boat. Correct. Correct me if I'm wrong. And we don't. We, I guess we don't spend like a ton of time talking about this. But this is what um, the people love because Sheba is the one who begins to rally the people and is killed. Shemai does not rally anyone, correct? It's per- Sheba. Sh- Shemai, I believe, is personal Sheba's insult. the one that was in the town that threw the head of, yeah, yeah. what's it? So I don't, but I don't think that Sheba was a threat to the throne. Well, well, I, guess, well I, I guess Shemai was a greater threat to the throne than Sheba. Oh, I guess, I guess that's where we disagree. Because I, I believe, and I have to go back and read this, um, but I believe Shemai was entirely personal insults. Because it's when he was fleeing, it's when David was fleeing from Absalom. And Shemai was cursing David, I believe, is is when this goes yes. down. Where Sheba is the one who is more of a threat to the crown in and of itself. Um, so the Sh- Shemai, I believe, is more of a personal grudge of David. Whereas Sheba, you can absolutely make the case that, like, it, assuming he hadn't been killed already. I don't right? think Sheba was a, a, a Sh- Shemai was a threat to the throne, but Shemai was a threat to the one who would take the throne. Was it was a compliment to the threat who's going to take the throne from David or Solomon? I think Shemai's in. I think that's that's more where for me it hinges on and lands on. Yeah, maybe. So, so all that to say, like, I think I don't think I would say it's still mercy because it's I could kill you, but I'm not going to. And and whether or not he made the comment or the commitment to, yeah, anyways, all that to say, I I see it more as David is like, hey, you need to guard the throne. Shemai's not trustworthy. Um, he's deceptive. He's going to play both sides. I mean, literally, I have Survivor playing in my brain right now. Like, he, they're playing both sides. They're voting on both sides. We got to get him out of the off the island. It's Boston Rock. Um, he shows you that you don't watch Survivor. Uh, yeah, I've definitely only I I know like <laughs> a couple I can name, seasons. I can know that one person. Yeah, um, it's not a bad. It wasn't a shot. It was just funny. Um, it's an old. That's an old player who's incredible and is he's he's a he's a legend. So, uh, anyways, all that to say, I would say that that Shemai was granted mercy. He ended up leaving and breaking the terms of the agreement. Ends up dying and paying with his life for it. Uh, and then we see in chapter three of <laughs> only in Second Kings here or First Kings here, chapter three we see Solomon Solomon has established his kingship, uh, taking after taking others to challenge his throne. Uh, he makes a treaty with Pharaoh until the palace and the temple are built. His palace, uh, David's palace, is finished. Whatever that looks like, and then the temple are built. Um, he sacrificed to the Lord at Gibeon, um, and this was interesting too because there's a verse in. There's verse three here that I think is really poignant. It says that Solomon loved the Lord by walking in the statutes of his father, David, but he also sacrificed and burnt incense on the high places. And the high places that I believe it's being referred to here is Gibeon, where he went and led God's people and sacrificed thousands of animals. And we, in second Chronicles, we get a little bit more picture of this verses two through six kind of replete repeats a little bit. Um, but then a little bit uh, clearer understanding of why Gibeon was a place where he sacrificed because that's where the tabernacle was established. That was where it was at, at the time. And so there is this picture of Solomon's going to the plate, the tabernacle to sacrifice because God's temple's not built yet. Um, but it's interesting that, uh, the statement here is that Solomon loved the Lord by walking the statutes of his father, David. 
Um, it's not the statutes of God. And so it shows that he's doing what he's doing because David, his father, directed him, which again, for me, only reinforces, I I wonder if there's a, a, a I'm speculating out loud, uh, listeners, you're more than welcome to give me feedback and push back on this. Uh, it's not a set in stone, but it was an interesting thought as I was reading through uh, the plan this, this time around, is that Solomon may not have been a very strong, smart, or wise king up until this moment in it's chapter possible, three. Yeah. Uh, and so I think there's just a layer of naivety, which again makes Solomon's request so brilliant to me, um, which then influences my application at the end of our podcast, which I'll get to that in a second as well. Um, but we see in First Chronicles 1, 2 through 6, why he went to Gibeon to sacrifice, because that's where the tabernacle was. Um, in First Kings 3, 5 to 15, we see Gibeon where God meets Solomon here. Uh, and then he's asked, what should I give you? And he replies, replies as I've already said brilliantly. Uh, so this is, I'm going to read verse 6 through 15. It says, And Solomon replied, You have shown great and faithful love to your servant, my father David, because he walked before you in faithfulness, righteousness, and integrity. You have continued this great and faithful love for him by giving him a son to sit on this throne as it is today. Lord my God, you have now made your servant king in my father David's place. Yet I am just a youth with no experience in leadership. Again, there's like, that's just where I'm like, mm, I wonder. Um, it says your servant, verse eight, is among uh, your people you have chosen, a people too many to be numbered or counted. So give your servant a receptive heart to judge your people and discern between good and evil. For who is able to judge this great people of yours? Now, please the Lord that Solomon had requested this. This is probably like the highlight of Solomon's life, except for Ecclesiastes, okay? Um, so verse 11, so God said to him, because you have requested this and did not ask for long life or riches for yourself or the death of your enemies, but you asked for discernment for yourself to administer justice, I will therefore do what you have asked. I will give you a wise and understanding heart so there, there may never, so that there has never been anyone like you before and never will be again. In addition, I will give you what you did not ask for, both riches and honor, so that no king will be your equal during your entire life. If you walk in my ways and keep my statutes and commands just as your father David did, I will give you a long life. Then Solomon woke up, and so this is where he was sleeping, right? He woke up and realized it had been a dream. He went to Jerusalem, stood before the Ark of the Lord's Covenant, and offered burnt offerings and fellowship offerings. Then he held a feast for all his servants. Um, and so that's that's the capture, that's the picture, and that's the conversation between uh, Solomon and God. Uh, and then in Second Chronicles, as we wrap up the, the week's reading uh, in the narrative portion, we only get to the highlight of Solomon's life here, um, one of the very few highlights. Uh, but in Second Chronicles 1, 7 to 13, we also see uh, kind of another glimpse, but it's still much of the same conversation uh, about his reply to God's question is, what do you want from me? Um, but I still land in the boat where I think right now, uh, Solomon's response was not just a, like a brilliant answer in general, um, but I actually think um, it's a very specific and strategic reply to the question of God. But we'll get to that when I get to the application here in just a second. Uh, but that wraps up uh, the reading this week. That wraps up what we're going to hit this week. So we've, we made it through the Psalm gauntlet. Uh, we start the narrative of Solomon's life. And then in the coming weeks, uh, we'll jump more into the narrative and the back and forth. Um, and then in July, we'll have another gauntlet of Psalms. So. And if, if you're a fan of our Ranking Kings segment, we're going to have a lot of those <laughs> coming in back rapid to back. succession. Yeah, exactly. Uh, once we get past, pretty much once we get past Solomon, we're going to start powering through a good chunk of Kings. Uh, but not this week, listeners. This week, we are going straight into what we learned today. 
Um, so for me, I think most of the time when I read Psalms, like I recognize, you know what I mean? Like you recognize the one that is like, oh yeah, this is nice. Uh, for me this week, reading Psalm 72 was really interesting because I just, I just never noticed it before, I suppose. Um, just the idea, oh, sorry, 73, not 72. Oh my goodness. Um, but just the way that it tackles that idea of, um, it's such a personal Psalm, the idea of struggling with this specific sin of even looking at like the the wicked and like you said like it, that gets brought up in Job and then also in particularly in Ecclesiastes and like that but I think it's just a really cool thing for the wisdom literature to bring up and then also just walking through and I get this is so someone said this to me like a couple weeks ago which is so this is part of why it's in my head but the idea of um, the wrathful God of the Old Testament making way for the merciful God of the New Testament. I think that gets so overblown <laughs> sometimes. Um, and it's just a really unhealthy way of looking at, at Scripture. And so I think the psalm that's talking about even in the midst of falling short and like the, like the way Asaph says it is when his soul was embittered and when he pricked at heart, even in the midst of that, um, God walking with him. It, it's, it's a beautiful picture of the mercy of God that I think oftentimes we do not give him credit for in the Old Testament. Yeah, that's really good. Um, and and my, my application for the day, uh, just again, this, this thing with Solomon has been so uh, thought-provoking for me the last few days as I've been reading through and kind of getting to the narrative. Um, but it, it, it I, I really, if what I speculate is accurate, um, then like for me, Solomon's response and his reply to God's question was based upon a very deep awareness of his lack um, and his inability to rule. And he even, even saying that, and for me, again, being reminded of it as I was even reading the verse a few minutes ago, uh, but his response, like, I am young and inexperienced. Um, it, it, he begged, he asked God to give him wisdom where he lacked wisdom. Uh, and I just thought it was so, so interesting and thought provokingly challenging to me. That was such a weird way to say that, but, uh, and it just made me ask the question, how often am I asking God to give me what I need in the midst of a role, in the midst of my job, in the midst of my, uh, when I say role, like my being a father, being a husband, being a man, uh, I don't have all the answers figured out. And if, and if I've learned anything in the last year and a half to two years almost, it's I, I don't know as much as I think I know. Um, and, and I've not asked God enough to say, God, give me the wisdom I need to navigate and lead to the capacity I need to, to the, to the effective platform I need to. Um, and so it's so challenging and encouraging to me. Like, I don't have it all figured out as a dad. We are navigating some crazy times culturally right now. There are some crazy situations that we have to figure out here locally, but also as a world culturally, we're so, uh, we're so in need of a move of Jesus. Um, that I oftentimes, how often am I leading in my own strengths or my own understandings and my own ability that I forget and neglect to ask God to give me more wisdom uh, that goes beyond my experience, that goes beyond my mental fortitude and ability um, to give me the skills that I need, to give me the critical thinking that I, to give me the things that I need. I thought it was so interesting and so challenging to me as, as a follower of Jesus today is, am I asking God for the things that I need? Uh, that are far beyond my experience or my wisdom. Um, and I think it's a really good and strategic way for us to consider moving forward as we face the challenges we face and as we face the different roles and the positions that we face as well. And so that's what I thought was was really thought-provoking this, this week. All right. Well, before we wrap it up, we do have, uh, we had a question come in this week. So we're going to take a second to answer that. 
All right. So our listener writes in, I find the Selah markers in the Psalms a bit unhelpful and inconsistent. Can you explain to me why a lot of them seem to be more of the, oh, that's a bit of a bummer point of the Psalm and not so much at the, but look how awesome God is point. Uh, And then why do some Psalms have them, but others are seemingly uh, of seemingly the same pace and focus and then others don't. So basically it's very inconsistent how they're utilized throughout the Psalms, which is very true. Yeah. Uh, It's all very confusing. Oh, Jedi, help a young Padawan out. And then uh, he writes that he, uh, beloved listener Tim wrote this on (laughs) the revenge of the sixth. So May 6th. So he had Star Wars on the mind. Um, So yeah, so it, it basically... It's it's kind of interesting because here's the thing, um, it's used inconsistently because it's not it's not it doesn't have to be used consistently. I suppose I'm trying to think of like a way to compare it as far as like songwriting would go. Um, maybe a bridge is a good way to kind of stick it in there, where like a lot of songs utilize utilize it. It's not necessary to be utilized. Um, although if you ask contemporary worship <laughs> artists, it is you have to have a bridge. Um, but you know what I mean? It's like that sort of thing. Even like when you go to old hymns, a lot of old hymns don't have choruses. Yeah, like you you don't re- return to the same thing over and over again. It's just verses and it's going through. Um, so it's just different types of poetry. It's different ways of writing a song, and it's, it's kind of David showing his um, his talent that yeah. he can write in multiple different styles. Um, as far as why the Selahs are oftentimes at the, oh, that's a bit of a bummer point. I think part of that is just to stay there. Um, and so it's, it's understanding that. Hmm. And I, I say this a lot because we know the ending of the Bible. Um, what you, know, you do? God wins. <laughs> so uh, I think a lot of times though, what that does is we don't. If you don't read Revelation, then you might struggle to believe God wins. That's true. Um, <laughs> I'm just kidding. But a, a lot of times what that, a lot of times what that does to us is we don't take the time to pause in the pain. And so when, oh, we, totally when we read Lazarus, right? The story of Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead. We know Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead. Um, so I almost feel like you could put in, like when when Mary's, when Martha says, or is it Mary? Shoot, I can't remember which sister now. Um, but one of them says that, Lord, if you would have just been here, my brother would have would not have died. I feel like you could put a Selah there, like sit in that. Like that is pain, that that is true heartbreak that this sister is experiencing in the moment. Yeah. Um, when we're looking, when Jesus is put into the tomb, you could put a Selah there and just like, stop, think about that. Collaborate and listen. <laughs> Ice is back with a brand new invention. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I, so I, I think in the Psalms, like I, I think, and I, I shouldn't say I think this is necessarily the intent, but I think what it does for us today is it allows us to pause and really reflect on those painful moments and not just immediately skip forward to, like you said, the, uh, but look how awesome God is like, and that's true. Um, but there's something about, it's kind of like, I love, um, as, as, as modern Christians, I shouldn't say as modern Christians, but as modern kind of Protestant evangelical Christians, we, we don't tend to focus on, um, the Advent season as much as we do the Christmas season, yeah. right? So we don't we don't spend a ton of time reflecting on our need for the sa- for a savior. Um, we just kind of get to Christmas and it's awesome. Or even Good Friday, right? Good Friday is famously nowhere near as well attended as Easter, and because it's not as fun, right? Like reflecting on like why we need Easter. Listen, I want on... a party, okay, not a funeral. Yeah, exactly. Um, and so I, I do think it's a healthy thing for us as Christians to do. And so when we read the Psalms and it's telling you, hey, pause take a moment to rest in this pain, I don't think that's a bad thing. Yeah, I would agree. And I think um, the other thing I would say is simply this, um, the Selahs are put there at the discretion of the psalmist. And we don't know the entire context of what they were thinking and processing. We right. only get a glimpse. 
And so they put them there for a reason. Like they they wanted people to pause and and reflect on the thing they wanted them to reflect on for a reason. Uh, it's just, I mean, I, I hate to say it this way, right? But it's, if someone writes a song, I don't sit there and say, hey, you can't put that that line or that medley or that instrumental there. Um, it's It's part of it. And I say this again, not to be... I almost feel sacrilegious saying this, but like it's at the discretion of the artist. It's it's a it's a layer of intentional writing, uh, and these are canonized on purpose and with good reason. Um, but I do think that there's there's something about it, and and it wouldn't have done the way that that I would do it. I wouldn't put them in the same spots either. Um, but when the psalm was written, there was a purpose to it. There was a reason why they wanted them to reflect, and whether the rest of the psalm the tone shifted and there was a, uh, a celebratory or whatever. There was a reason for that sale to be there for a specific thing. Uh, and part of the journey of our walk with Jesus through the word is to, to stop in those moments, and say, okay, Holy spirit, t- teach me more about this one. Help me reflect what, what, what's the beauty in here or, or what's the heartbeat. So I just think there's, there's some, it was at the discretion of the psalmist and we just, we won't, I don't know if we'll ever know. Maybe when we get to heaven, because we'll be more enlightened by the truth of, of Jesus. But at the end of the day, like, it's a great question. And you're right. It's absolutely inconsistent. Not every psalmist uses it. Um, not it, David uses some, but Asaph uses Like, it's just one of those tensions of why is it there? Uh, and then prayerfully saying, okay, Holy Spirit, help me understand that. Uh, and so I just think that's a big part of it, too. Yeah, Absolutely. Well, listeners, that does wrap it up for this week's episode of Let's Read the Bible. As a reminder, we are a podcast of the Grove Church, but we're not the only resource of the Grove Church. You can find all of our resources on our website, grove.church, under the media tab. And if this podcast has been a blessing to you and you would like to financially contribute to the ministry that the Grove Church does, you can also do that on our website. There's a gift button in the upper right-hand corner. And hey, thank you all so much for listening. Have a great week.